Welcome to the September Pension Podcast from the Stevenson Harwood Pension Team. You can subscribe and listen on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. I'm Alex Rush, an associate in the pensions team, and I have with me Philip Goodchild, a pensions partner in the team. Today we're going to talk about some of the pensions law developments up to the end of September 2018, including a case from the Court of Justice of the European Union on PPF compensation levels, ombudsman decisions concerning death and ill health benefits, and the regulator's concern over transfer values. So first of all, I'll take a look at the key development this month, which was the European Court of Justice's decision on the level of benefits to be provided by the PPF. As we mentioned in our May edition, the Advocate General to the European Court had provided an opinion in the case of Hampshire and the Board of the Pension Protection Fund. That opinion suggested that individual members of occupational pension schemes are entitled to at least 50% of the total value of their accrued rights on an employer's insolvency. On 6 September, the European Court reached the same conclusion. Under current PPF rules, compensation for members of schemes which transfer to the PPF and who are below their scheme's normal pension age is broadly capped at around £35,000. If this amounts to less than 50% of the member's original entitlement, the European Court's judgment will render such treatment a breach of European law. The European Court stated that Article 8 of the Insolvency Directive must be interpreted as meaning that every individual employee must receive old age benefits corresponding to at least 50% of the value of his accrued entitlement under their occupational pension scheme in the event of his employer's insolvency. The judgment will have an impact on the level of PPF compensation that some members may be entitled to and could be good news for high earners whose schemes have transferred to or will in the future transfer to the PPF. The government and the PPF will now need to review PPF compensation levels and consider how schemes should determine their Section 179 funding position. That's essentially the cost of providing benefits at PPF funding levels. As we mentioned in our May snapshot, this is likely to require the UK to amend primary legislation to make the PPF compensation regime compliant with the Insolvency Directive, with the upshot being that employers' levy payments may increase. The judgment also leaves trustees facing the dilemma of what to do if they need to secure benefits outside the PPF, given that legislation provides for a tranche of benefits that must mirror PPF benefits. Trustees may need to decide whether they follow the legislation, which in the light of this judgment is probably no longer fit for purpose, or take the view that they should be following the European Court's approach. Thanks, Alex. Given the obvious uncertainty, we can only hope that the government will legislate urgently to address the issue, notwithstanding Brexit. There has been a couple of interesting pensions ombudsman and deputy pensions ombudsman cases recently concerning death benefits. The pensions ombudsman has recently upheld two separate complaints in relation to the payment of death benefits from pension schemes. The first case, concerning Mr Y, has implications for employers regarding the scope of their duty to advise employees and dependents on death benefit options. Mr Y was employed by Belfast City Council and was a member of the Northern Ireland Local Government Officers Superannuation Committee. He was diagnosed with cancer in late 2012 and was recommended for early retirement on grounds of permanent ill health by the Council in May 2013. Mr Y's notice period was scheduled to end on 17th August 2013, following which he would become a retired member of the Pension Fund. Mr Y was told that his wife, Mrs Y, would receive significantly more benefits from the pension fund if he died in retirement, rather than in service. 
He was told to contact the council if his condition worsened so that his notice period could be brought forward. Mr Y subsequently died in service on the 14th of August 2013. Mrs Y duly complained to the pensions ombudsman about the handling of Mr Y's retirement. She submitted that the council had reason to bring forward Mr Y's retirement date so that he died in retirement. If this had happened, Mrs Y would have received greater benefits from the fund. Mrs Y's complaint focused on a phone call she made to the council on the same day that Mr Y learned of his diagnosis and that it was terminal. Mrs Y submitted that she told the council during the call that her husband's condition was terminal and inquired about the option of bringing forward the pension benefits. The council told her that it would not be possible to bring forward the benefits and that Mr Y would need to wait until his termination date. The council disagreed with this account of the call and submitted that Mrs Y had not inquired about waiving Mr Y's notice period and bringing forward his benefits. She had only asked about the early retirement of some of his benefits to pay for a family holiday. In the absence of call recordings or notes, the pensions ombudsman determined that, and we quote, on the balance of probabilities... Mrs Y had confirmed to the council on the call that Mr Y's condition was terminal and had sought early access to his benefits. This information was sufficient to mean that council reasonably ought to have inquired as to whether Mr Y wished to waive the remaining notice period in order to bring forward payment of his benefits. Had it done so, it was likely that Mr Y would have taken up the option and ultimately died in retirement. Pensions Ombudsman directed the council to pay the difference between the death benefits paid to Mrs Y to date and those that Mr Y and Mrs Y would have received had Mr Y's service been terminated two days after the call. Moving on to the second one in relation to a Mr R has implications for trustees regarding the information they provide in relation to death benefit options where they are on notice that a member is terminally ill. Mr R was a deferred member of the Simons Group Limited Pension and Life Assurance Scheme. He was diagnosed with terminal cancer in November 2012 and contacted the scheme administrator to discuss his uh, benefits options in April 2016. The administrator provided Mr R with his options in a letter dated 18 April 2016. Mr R did not act on these options and died in August that year. Mr R's widow, Mrs R, was subsequently informed that she was entitled to scheme benefits which were significantly lower than those set out in the letter. Mrs R was told that the options set out in the letter were only available had they been acted upon during Mr R's lifetime. Mr R had not acted on those options and so the death benefits were calculated on the deferred member basis. Mrs R complained to the pensions ombudsman that the scheme trustees had failed to inform Mr R that the scheme benefits payable on his death would be considerably lower if he did not take the benefits during his life. The letter did not mention what would happen where Mr R did not take benefits during his lifetime. Consequently, Mr R took no further action on the basis that the options set out in the letter remained available after his death. The trustees argued that Mr R had only asked for details of his early retirement options and that it was unreasonable to assume that the options set out in the letter would apply after Mr R's death. The pensions ombudsman determined that the trustees had failed to take adequate measures to ensure Mr R understood the significance of the options in the letter. 
In particular, they had failed to explain that, if Mr R did not take the benefits before his death, the benefits actually payable on his death would be significantly lower. The trustees knew, or ought to have known, that Mr R had terminal cancer, and they had a fiduciary duty to provide him with all the relevant information to enable him to make a fully informed decision about his benefit options. The trustees had breached this duty as they had failed to mention that the benefit options in the letter were dependent on him making a choice in his lifetime. Pensions Ombudsman also held that the trustees should have satisfied themselves that Mr R had received the letter and understood its contents. Pensions Ombudsman therefore directed the trustees to calculate the amount of lump sum which Mr R's estate would have received had he applied for the second option in the letter during his life and to pay that to Mr R's estate. The trustees were also directed to calculate the difference between the spouse's pension which Mrs R was receiving and that which would have been received had Mr R applied for the second option. Difference was then paid to Mrs R. The pensions ombudsman also awarded Mrs R £500 for distress and inconvenience. Thanks Philip. Both those determinations highlight the importance to employers and trustees of clearly communicating death benefit options where a member is in ill health. In a further pensions ombudsman determination, this time from the deputy ombudsman, there was a view on a complaint relating to the payment of death benefits. The deputy ombudsman upheld a complaint against Royal London Group for its failure to consider any or all potential beneficiaries of a lump sum death benefit, as required under the applicable scheme rules. The background to this case is that the father of a deceased member learned from Royal London that a death benefit lump sum of around £25,000 would be paid to Ms D, a former girlfriend of the member. The father alleged that the couple were only briefly an item and that the relationship had ended more than six years before his son's death. Royal London stated that the member had nominated Ms D and that it had a legal duty to follow that nomination, regardless of any moral or other argument that the payment should not be paid to Ms D. The Deputy Pensions Ombudsman disagreed with Royal London, saying that it had misdirected itself. She considered that the relevant scheme rules required the scheme administrator in its absolute discretion to decide on the distribution of the lump sum to one or more of the member's potential beneficiaries. The Ombudsman saw no requirement that permitted the discretion to be fettered in the event the member had submitted a nomination form. The Ombudsman directed the scheme's administrator to retake the decision but only once it had identified and gathered information on all of the members' potential beneficiaries. The Ombudsman commented that Royal London would need to consider whether its payment to Miss D was recoverable from her, but that this should not prejudice the outcome of its decision. The Ombudsman awarded the father £500 in compensation, and she also directed that simple interest should be added to that lump sum, to the extent that Royal London did ultimately award the father the lump sum. One peculiar point about this case, which was not pointed out by the Ombudsman, is the fact that the scheme's provider considered that the completion of a nomination form meant that it had no discretion to award the benefit to any other potential beneficiary of the member. This is odd, because in order for a death benefit payment from a registered pension scheme to be paid without incurring inheritance tax charges, it would need to be subject to the scheme trustee's absolute discretion. This determination serves as a useful reminder that trustees should not follow expression of wishes forms arbitrarily and without considering other potential beneficiaries and the circumstances of the deceased. So lastly, a Freedom of Information request has revealed that the pensions regulator has written to some 14 defined benefit pension schemes asking to review the calculation of their transfer values. This is on the basis that they were potentially too generous 
given the financial position of the schemes in question. The regulator's intervention seems to have been driven by its focus on ensuring that a transfer value does not lead to fraudulent pensions liberation, and in this particular case ensuring that a transfer value which is calculated on a too generous basis is not to the detriment of the remaining scheme members. The regulator has stressed that actuarial advice needs to be obtained, and in particular, for a pension scheme in deficit, an insufficiency report which will allow for a determination on the extent to which a transfer value should be reduced. This demonstrates again a more interventionist approach of being adopted by the pensions regulator when there are question marks over a scheme's sustainability. Considering the detail of a particular scheme's calculation of transfer values demonstrates that the regulator is willing to consider these finer points to ensure the security of benefits for members as a whole. That's all for this month's podcast. Thanks for listening. We hope you found the podcast informative. And don't forget, you can listen again and subscribe to the series on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud, or indeed on the Stevenson Harwood website. Mm